I've always loved heist stories, on screen or on the page. The mastermind, the crew, the gulf between plans and execution, familiar beats with an irresistibly propulsive engine. So much so that when I'm planning something in work or in life that involves more than three people, I find myself drawn to the language of the heist. You're the getaway driver, I'm the explosives expert, and mum can be the acrobat. I know it's juvenile, but that's how my brain works. So it's something of a relief to discover that a two-time Pulitzer winner and former MacArthur Genius Grant recipient is similarly afflicted. And for Colson Whitehead, it's less about the slick, smooth operations and more about when the wheels come off. They're the Ocean's Eleven ones where you're handsome, you're smart, and you have resources, and you pull it off, you know, the very brilliant heist. The larger body, and that's what I was really sort of thinking of, is the, uh, the heist that goes wrong. From Schwartz Media, I'm Michael Williams with Read This, a show about the books we love and the stories behind them. The thing about being a Colson Whitehead fan is that you never know what you're going to get. An autobiographical coming-of-age story might be immediately followed by a zombie novel. He'll write a non-fiction book about poker one minute and then a multi-award-winning epic about slavery and race in America the next. It's that last one, 2016's Underground Railroad, that cemented his status as a literary rock star. He won his first Pulitzer for it and then became the first writer to ever take home the prize for successive novels when he won again three years later for his follow-up, the Nickel Boys. If you haven't read them, do so. They are extraordinary. But how do you follow that kind of unprecedented success? The answer was his 2021 heist novel, Harlem Shuffle. It was this breezy, funny, energetic romp set in the 1960s, following Ray Carney, furniture salesman, and Fence, the man at the pointy end of the heist, whose job is to get the stolen wares out into the world and make sure everyone gets paid. The New York City of Harlem Shuffle was lively and rich. In its sequel, Crook Manifesto, which has just been released, the city is an altogether grimmer, grimier, more compromised place. I always thought it was a cliche when people were like, oh, the city is also a character in the novel. Like, uh, Dublin and Ulysses, it's also a character. Halfway through Harlem Shuffle, I was like, all right, I guess the city is <laughs> a freaking character. Um, and so, you know, Ray's fortunes are rising and falling and so are the cities and in the 1970s uh, the city is bankrupt crime is at an all-time high and that is the landscape and so um it was important for that to be in there it was great to do the research i was a very young kid in the early 70s and i remember it just being gray and dirty a glimmer of what it, what it was like so doing the research and, and trying to put myself into ray carney in the early 70s was really fun For a writer that's never repeated himself, returning to the world he introduced in Harlem Shuffle gives Whitehead the chance to build on themes. He gets to track through the decades and ultimately understand more about his hero, Ray Carney. Uh, He wants to be an upstanding citizen, but has that voice in the back of his head saying, let's do some crimes. So we jump six years and he's left the fencing business. He's a legit businessman. His store, furniture store is doing fine. But of course, he has all these contacts from his old days. He needs Jackson 5 tickets for his daughter. His daughter's a teenager now, and uh, the Jackson 5 are in the midst of an early success. 
touring with the Commodores, who uh, Ray Korn just has never heard of. <laughs> and um, in order to get those tickets, he has to hit up an old uh, colleague, a corrupt cop, and things escalate from there, sort of a bad lieutenant style. One of the delightful tensions, particularly in Harlem Shuffle, but coming through to Crook Manifesto for Carney, is that he's the son of a criminal. And part of his question to himself is whether you can escape those kind of echoes of the past. And the, Can you tell us a bit about your conception of Big Mike Carney? He's a brutal guy and definitely an absentee parent, and, and Carney had to build himself up in high school and college, put himself through grad school. That was his model for manhood, and it's a, um, you know, a violent, non-productive model of manhood, which he rejects. But then, of course, there is some of that inside of him. And so there are many forces that work upon Carney in the book. Sometimes it's race, it's class, and um, his upbringing, and then also his nature. You know, he has a bit of big Mike Carney in him, and I think Pepper sort of recognizes that. And I think like seeing a bit of his old friend in, in Ray Carney, but also knows that um, maybe Ray's a, a better person than Big Mike was. Pepper's a fabulous character because one of the things when you traffic in crime as a writer is thinking about your characters and their relationship to things like guilt or a kind of anxiety or self-kind of awareness about the consequences of their actions. And as you say, Pepper gives you a chance to have someone who we get a bit more insight into what makes Pepper tick in Crook Manifesto. You give him a caper of his very own. Yeah, there are characters who return, like Zippo, who was an amateur pornographer in the first book, and then Pepper. Um, I love Pepper from the beginning. One of the models, apart from various heist movies from the 50s and 70s and 60s, was Parker, a character in Richard Stark's 20-something series of, of crime novels. And he's a, a master criminal. He'd be a millionaire, except he has to associate with all these bums. And so every heist that he meticulously plans uh, goes awry. And, and hopefully there's a, you know, some of that in, in Pepper. I decided to give him a, a bigger showcase. Uh, he's a good foil for Ray. He allows us as presumably non-criminal types to see the crooked side close up. I like that you're working on the assumption that hopefully your readers are largely non-criminal types. Did you have after Harlem Shuffle people coming sidling up to you and being like, this is what you got wrong about being a fence? I'm not sure that they're that vocal about it. You know, I've written books about elevator inspectors, and I've never met elevator inspectors, but um, I've had people who have met them and say, oh, I gave them the intuitionist. And then a week later, you know, the inspector comes back and says, I don't know what that guy was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) You know, (laughs) I try to get it right for me and then hopefully some, some other people. I'm not sure how actual safe crackers would agree with every single decision about my character. I like to think safe crackers are spending a lot of time on giving star <laughs> ratings sure, for Amazon, books. Yeah. You know, uh, he well, said this yeah. about this kind of safe and it's completely wrong. Yes, yeah, so they, they started making that in 1945 and any bum could, could crack that. I do like that detail though. Like uh, There are safes in Harlem Shuffle where – you're very deliberate about how many hits with a crowbar or a sledgehammer it's going to take before it's going to give. You know, this one's a six hit, this one's a 12 hit. Yes, and, and that's, you know, and part of that is real research and part of it is getting into character. You know, um, I have to imagine a guy is broken into a lot of these safe deposit boxes. Some are more formidable, some are easier. So I try to riff on that in a realistic way. One of the things I really love about these books is the relationship between Ray and his wife, Elizabeth. I think it's a really kind of lovely, beautifully depicted marriage and a really important kind of counterweight 
to raise various kind of adventures and capers that he's going on. Can you talk a bit about the character of Elizabeth for us? Yeah, I mean, she comes from a more well-to-do family. Uh, her parents are real snobs, and that's a, a factor in, in Harlem Shuffle. Uh, but she loves Ray and has been a great support and beacon for him as he's found his, his way through life. She also returns, of course, and her career is going through different changes. And in this book and in the, the, the third book I'm working on, she's going through her own transformation. Part of Elizabeth's trajectory is she works as a travel agent, which uh, through the 60s and then into the 70s, the political nature of that role and her proximity to civil rights movements, whereas Carney is a bit removed from that world of politics, except when it has a utility for him for what he's trying to do. Elizabeth is kind of right there in a front row seat to some pretty seismic social changes. Well, she's not a criminal and she's a, a real like a real person, not shady like, like Ray or the other straight up criminals. So she's like a reality check on what's actually going on with normal people. So in the first book, there's various sort of racial upheaval and she's a voice of the sort of average black person. The criminals aren't necessarily marching. You know, if you say, let's not go over bank on Tuesday, the wheel man's not going to say, but Tuesday's election day. I got to vote that day. We can't do it then. Um, and so someone has to sort of stand in for what's going on in the larger community. And, and sometimes that's Elizabeth. As a travel agent, she is organizing trips and vacations for people going down to the south. It's perilous to travel during the, the Jim Crow days in the early 60s. There are towns you cannot be seen on the street when you're black, hotels that won't serve you, restaurants. And so, you know, she's one of the keepers of the database of where it's safe to travel. If you've seen the movie Green Book, I have not. But I'm, I'm told <laughs> that... that uh, Important disclaimer, <laughs> you don't want to damage your cred there. No, I've not seen it, but the Green Book was a real thing. And so in the 70s, where does she go? There's a, a new sort of feminist movement. More women have their own businesses. Can she see that for herself? And so I'm tracing her change in consciousness also. It's not an embrace or rejection of criminality, as in Ray, but of herself. Who is she as a person, as a mother, as a black woman? On that question of character, I mean, I'm, I'm interested when you make the kind of uh, gear shift from a book like Underground Railroad or Nickel Boys to Harlem Shuffle or Crook Manifesto, do you approach character differently? Is there a kind of solemnity to how you approach one type of character and a play to the other, or is that just how it comes out on the page? Well, I mean, I, I think about these these people a lot before I start writing. Um, I know that Cora in the Underground Railroad has been very damaged, a very damaged person, uneducated. I have to find a language for someone who uh, is not a reader to describe the world. I have to have a language for her to interpret all these strange sights in each stop on the, on the railroad. So I, I try to figure out who each person is before they get on the page. I felt a real distance from my characters in my first couple of books. Sag Harbor, which is a very autobiographical book, was a, a breakthrough for me. I was dealing with things in my childhood. And since then, the characters, I think, have been more complicated in a nice way and more fully developed on the page. So hopefully, you know, from book to book, you're, you're getting better at, at what you do, whether you're a writer, a plumber, or a heart surgeon. Hopefully, after 25 years as a heart surgeon, you're killing fewer people. I wonder, though, with a heart surgeon or a plumber, if there's a point where you peak and then your stuff declines after that. Yeah, I think everyone peaks. You know, hopefully I haven't, <laughs> I haven't hit the peak yet. Uh, maybe I, I wouldn't mind a plateau. 
you know, there's always a decline in quality eventually, and hopefully I haven't hit that yet. And unfortunately, no one tells you. <laughs> there's a, I saw a writer at a Sydney Writers' Festival a few years ago, and he got up and he began by saying, you know, they say you come to Australia twice in your career, once on the way up and once on the way down, and it's so good to be back. And I thought that, that's, a, that's a pretty fun construction, the idea. This is, my, this is my second visit, so we'll see how it goes. I, I don't believe the decline's in evidence yet. I think when... Curtis Hansen adapted L.A. Confidential for the screen. He quoted a Raymond Chandler quote that was that in a good thriller, you needed an element of surprising inevitability. When stuff happened, it always had to happen because that's who the character is, but it still takes you by surprise and takes you by shock. I know you're a careful plotter and you think about the schematic of what you're doing ahead of time. Are there moments where in a thriller you were surprised that things turned nasty or you just couldn't? help yourself, that you had thought it was going to go one way, and then you're like, no, this is going to go down bad. There is that inevitability, and it's built into the you know the heist genre. There are the Ocean's Eleven ones where you're handsome, you're smart, and you have resources, and you pull it off, you know, the very brilliant heist. The larger body, and that's what I was really sort of thinking of, is the heist that goes wrong. There's that dilemma of the heist. If you pull it off, you can change your fate, and then, of course, it's botched, and you can't change your fate. You can't transcend your origins. Uh, you're doomed to your luckless existence, and you're a foolish to even try, but you do try. So that doomed heist is very attractive. Plotting them is fun. Uh, you have to be open to surprise, definitely, and go in a different direction if the characters are, are asking you or, or logic is dictating you. There's definitely a mood and a palette, a philosophical tone that's in there from the beginning, and I'm sticking to it. Coming up after the break, we hear more about the ways in which 11 books in, Colson Whitehead is still learning things about the kind of writer he is. Did you know you can support the artists you love and receive a tax deduction for donations over $2 through the Australian Cultural Fund? Last year, the Australian Cultural Fund facilitated over $11 million of donations to artists across the country. You can make a real difference to the work of Australian artists this end of financial year by donating through the Australian Cultural Fund. For more information, visit australianculturalfund.org.au. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive the Saturday paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. Welcome back. Today on the show, I'm talking with Colson Whitehead about his newest novel, The Heist Caper Crook Manifesto. I'm really interested in the role of joy for you in writing because you often have a kind of gloomy worldview sometimes, but there's also this kind of sense in the difference between the different books you do in the ways in which you research different areas, you pursue different kind of passions and curiosities and things. That sense of play is really wonderful. And I, I'm, I'm interested in whether you get joy from the writing process. Apart from the jokes, and I have a weird sense of humor, and I can find a conduit for that in some books, definitely in uh, the criminal world of the Harlem trilogy. There's a lot of room for play there. The work is hard, but I love it. There's nothing else I could do. I love the surprise discoveries, whether it's that you don't know you're going to have when you wake up that morning. And maybe it's a sentence, a new kind of image. Maybe it's a plot point or a piece of character work. I love those discoveries. I love 
when I'm in the groove on a book and everything is just sort of feeding the work and um, I feel like I'm, you know, in the matrix and everything is just a, a, a bunch of ones and zeros and I can manip- manipulate everything. So I love that. But there's a lot of doubt. You know, is this working? Why isn't a sentence working? And maybe it's just a comma. Maybe you have to flip the clauses. Maybe a sentence has to go. And so uh, nobody can do it except for you, really. Obviously, people come in later, editors, uh, my early readers. But all that sort of brute work is up to me. And um, it's terrifying, but also, you know, very exhilarating. And I wish there was, I wish there was something else I could do that would give me as much pleasure. But there's not. You know what? When you're the best at something, you may as well just embrace that <laughs> as your thing. I did hear an interview with you just after you won your second Pulitzer, which is a wild sentence to say to anyone, where you were asked, you know, did it change you? Did it change the way you write, the way you approach it? And you said, you know, you get up the next day and have to write another page. And the thing that struck me about that that I wanted to immediately ask was just the one page. I mean, is it a page a day? Is that a typical <laughs> pace? Uh, for me, um, you know, some people say you should write every day. It seems like an imposition on my lifestyle, frankly. But eight pages a week is a good accumulation for me. I'm not slacking. I'm not going too fast. If I write 12 pages, that means that I'm spending the next week cleaning up some of the sloppier stuff. But eight pages a week, you know, I'm very, very nerdy. So eight pages a week, that's 30-something a month. Ten months later, you have 300 pages, and that's a novel. You have to obviously stop on Thanksgiving so you're not like a jerk <laughs> and uh, <laughs> hang out with your family. But, uh, you know, that steady accumulation in the, the daunting size of a novel, that marathon, makes sense to me. Can you – do you read fiction when you're writing fiction or do you instead immerse yourself in the kind of nonfiction that is of complementary kind of research? Yeah, the last couple of years, it's really just been nonfiction, memoirs of gangsters, New York stories. When I'm reading for fun now, it's people like Patrick Radden Keith and David Grant, and journalists who are busting out of their articles to write, you know, some big uh, nonfiction work. Yeah, I know that one of your kind of processes for yourself is about giving yourself permission to write certain things at certain times. I'm interested. Do you reflect on the fact that you're Oeuvre, and I can't think of a less pretentious word to use than that. I'm so sorry. Your body of work has given a new generation of writers permission to do things and conceive of themselves in ways they might not have. No, I think I think it's cool when people say that, particularly young black writers who feel who do feel this duty to represent the community. No one's keeping track of you, and you should find the work that's compelling. And maybe that's a biography of Benjamin Franklin who, as far as I know, had no association with the black community, but that's what you like, uh, you should do that. If you write love poetry, if you write uh, about gardening, that's what you should do. And I do have an interest in race and history, and sometimes that's there in some books and sometimes not. But I do feel like when I meet a young writing student and they say, oh, the Underground Railroad or Sag Harbor made me get over my own shit and allowed me to take some risks. Or there's a student in an MFA program, a writing program, who gets something out of the intuitionist, and is not stuck in some sort of rigid, realistic mode of writing. I'm, I'm really glad. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So when the third book in this trilogy is finished, you will have spent the longest period of time of your writing life with a single set of characters, a single world. Will you miss that? Are you dreading that moment when it comes? Do you already have that itchy feeling that you know where you want to zigzag to next? I um, have an idea for a novel after this, but who knows when I, you know, I'll get to it. I mean... Yeah, I've never had a project where I love the characters and world so much that I wanted to continue. 
you know, if I think about it, it's 1,100 pages of this one guy's life, you know, 30 years in his life and his family and the life of a city. Um, it's daunting, but also very, um, very exciting. So, you know, the, the next idea can wait. Right now, I'm definitely enjoying being uh, in this world and trying to find the variation that makes Crook Manifesto different from the first book and then the third book different from the second, trying not to repeat some of the stories and, and find intriguing changes for his character over time. It may be too soon to say, you might not like to say at this point in the process, but presumably the third book will partly be dealing with a time and place that you have personal memories of. Will that change? Well, yeah, it's 1980s, and that's, you know, my um, sort of formative years. I always feel like I'm getting into the character. I mean, there's probably some, you know, little fun facts that I'll know from memory and not so much hunting down in the advertisements of the New York Times of the period. Yeah, there's some sections that are closer to my experience, and finding ways for Ray and Pepper to get into them is intriguing in a way that's not self-indulgent, but actually serves the characters. So how can I get that liquid, liquid reference in, or Keith Haring with a a bunch of middle-aged squares like Ray and Pepper? That'll be an intriguing task. What I'd really like to see is Alfred Hitchcock style. Pepper and Ray encounter a young Colson at some point, just on the street. Two seconds. <laughs> sure. Just get yourself on the page. The ultimate in self-indulgence. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, well, John Henry Day's my second novel takes place in the 80s and 90s, and there's a an Egon coffee table. Egon is a a brand of furniture that I made up for John Henry Day's, and it's in Harlem Shuffle. So there's actually overlap in the the universe. <laughs> of, those, of those two books. So we'll see who, who will pop up strangely from other books of mine. We're going to get the Colson Whitehead cinematic universe at some point. Well, in a TV show of Underground Railroad, you know, Barry Jenkins, who directed it, was a big fan. And so he took a monologue from The Intuitionist, my first book, for, for the TV series. So who knows what weird Easter eggs for whatever psychotic nerds who read, read all my books, <laughs> they'll find. I count myself as one of those psychotic <laughs> nerds. I'm into it. It's a wonderful thing. Colson Whitehead, thank you so much for your time. No, thanks for having me. As a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Before we get out of here, I wanted to tell you what I've been reading this week. I'm super excited by this debut book of short stories I've been reading called Firelight. They're written by John Morrissey. He's from Melbourne of Kalkadoon descent, and you might have seen his stories over the past few years in various literary journals. He was also in this terrific anthology of First Nations speculative fiction from a couple of years back that was called This All Come Back Now. The stories in Firelight are in a similar vein. They're stories about colonialism and Indigenous identity, but they've all got this genre flavour and hints of sci-fi. It's unexpected and surprising and really bloody good. Well worth a read. And Catherine Lacey's latest novel, Biography of X, is also a cracker. A page-turner about the way artists and other public figures manufacture identity for themselves. Lies, betrayals, secrets, all the good stuff. It's all there. Anybody who read Nobody Is Ever Missing will already be hanging out for this one, and it doesn't disappoint. You can find these books and all the others we mentioned at your favourite independent bookstore. 
Or if you want to listen to them, head to the Read This Reading Room on Apple Books at apple.com forward slash read this. There's a link in our show notes. This episode was produced by Clara Ames and edited by Sarah McVeigh. Special thanks this week to Shane Anderson. Mixing and original compositions by Zoltan Fetcher. I'm Michael Williams. Thanks for listening. See you next week.